With uh, this being Thanksgiving weekend and a lot of people traveling, I decided I'd set aside the book of Romans just for, for this uh, week, and Lord willing, we'll get back to it next uh, Lord's evening. Uh, tonight, I want us to be encouraged from the Word of God with, uh, because we have many things, obviously, to be thankful for all of the time. And I thought it would be great for us just to look at a favorite psalm uh, written by David uh, that blesses the Lord for the many benefits that he provides for us always. So take your Bible, open the Old Testament to the book of Psalms, Psalm 103, 103rd Psalm. Psalm 103, verse 1, the superscription says, a Psalm of David, verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, he is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and those who remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. One of the most popular uh, psalms of all time, I think we would probably at least uh, affirm that to some extent. Uh, it's uh, uh, the Genesis, Psalm 103 is the genesis of many hymns, uh, including one written by a Scotsman named Harry Light, uh, whose uh, father had described him at one point in his life as a worthless young man, until one day in 1816, uh, he was uh, beside the deathbed of a dying man, and as he saw the cold, grim reality of uh, death, he found a Bible and he began to read it, and it was converted to Christ. He becomes a preacher uh, of the Word of God. He is a, a musician, and he writes poetry. And in, in uh, um, uh, 1834, he writes one of our favorite psalms today based off of this uh, Psalm 103. And the part of the text says, Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet your tribute bring. Ransom healed, restored, forgiven, evermore his praises sing. Praise him for his grace and favor to his people in distress. Praise him still the same as ever, slow to chide and swift to bless. 
Praise Him, praise Him, glorious in His faithfulness. That's Psalm 103, right? Psalm 103 is one of the highest and loftiest of uh, psalms that really rises above all of the others. Uh, the uh, commentator uh, Derek Kidner says that Psalm 103 and 104 are companion psalms, that these are two psalms that praise God, the Creator, the Savior, the Father, the Sustainer, the One who is merciful and mighty. And he says, in the galaxy of the Psalter, there are the twin stars, or these are the twin stars of the first magnitude. Again, it's a psalm of David. Psalm 103 is probably written later in his life, or later in his years, when he had a higher sense of the preciousness of, of pardon and a keener sense of uh, his own sin that he did as a youth. Spurgeon says of the, the psalm that it has been ripened in the full sunshine of mercy. Right, so here's a man who's uh, uh, blessing God. Here's a man blessing God because of his personal mercies, which he had received from God himself. So Psalm 103 is a praise, a psalm of praise from the beginning to the end. One writer says this, he says, There are no clouds in the horizon, no, nor notes of sadness in the music of the psalm, no pure outbursts of thankful, uh, thankfulness enriches the church. It is well amid the many psalms which give voice to mingled pain and trust. There should be one of unalloyed gladness, as untouched by sorrow, as if sung by spirits in heaven. He says, Because it is thus purely an outburst of thankful joy, it is more fit to be pondered in times of sorrow. Right? Times of, times of sorrow, times of uh, plenty. Psalm 103 calls us all with, uh, uh, to, to praise the Lord and to praise the Lord with the entirety of our being, uh, the entirety of our soul, uh, to ponder God's grace, to ponder His uh, great outpouring of grace and love upon us. And again, it's a psalm of pure praise. There's nothing in the psalm of any kind, any mention of any kind of historical circumstances around the psalm. There's no enemies, no threats, no requests made, no no complaints, no petition. It's just pure worship. And it begins and ends with the same line, verse 1 and verse 20. It's a personal call to worship God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And it's a psalm that encourages us not to forget all of his benefits, the many blessings and mercies that he's poured out upon us. It's a psalm for believers uh, who, according to verse 11, verse 13, verse 17, are those who fear him. Those who fear him, verse 18 says, to those who keep his covenant, remember his precepts to do them. I was, uh, was, I was just reading again this afternoon and just looking over it. I was again encouraged and challenged by this psalm that we're all very familiar with. It's just a tremendous um, uh, point of remembrance. And that's what we want to do at oftentimes, especially at times of uh, the year of Thanksgiving. We want to remember God and his goodness. So the psalm's been divided by different commentators in a variety of different ways. Uh, I'm going to use one that just calls the first five verses really an, an internal call to praise or an individual call to praise God. Verses 6 through 18 is really an external call or a corporate call, if you will. And then the last few verses, 19 to 22, is just a universal call to praise God. So let's begin to just work our way through it. And I think your heart will be challenged and encouraged uh, as I was just reading through the notes this afternoon. Uh, Verse 1. Again, Psalm 103, verse 1. A Psalm of David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that that is within me, bless his holy name. Uh, So David's calling first upon himself to praise the Lord. Worship is going to begin with me, so I'm calling myself to praise the Lord first. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And and note that it is a a call to do that with his entire being, the entirety of himself, everything he has. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So from the innermost 
uh, heart, uh, from the innermost being of his heart, uh, that's where praise should come. And he begins by stirring up his inner self, if you will, uh, to magnify the Lord. Because David's very much like us. As you read him, you know that. He could allow dullness to overcome his heart. If he forgets intentionally to do this thing that he's calling on himself to do. To diligently be on watch. To diligently stir the innermost part of his being. To shake off apathy. To shake off gloom. To shake off indifference. And that's what we're called to do, to intentionally stir ourselves up also uh, to magnify the Lord because he's worthy to be praised. And, and praise that fills the mind with truth really moves the heart. That's why we, that's why we preach the word here and everything that we do in all of our different settings because, because praise fills the mind with truth and that, uh, or the mind that's filled with the truth is the, that tr- truth that moves the heart to worship. Jonathan Edwards uh, believed that there was no true worship that didn't touch the affections, that didn't touch the heart. You might remember the New Testament that Christ rebuked the hypocritical worship of men that was strangely unaffected with honoring God, but honoring God with their lips while their hearts were far from him. Matthew 15, etc. So David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that was within me. And then he says, Bless his holy name. So David is instructing his own heart to dwell on the attribute of the holiness of God. Spurgeon says, The holiness of God is the grandest motive for rendering him homage or the homage due him. Babes may praise divine goodness, but fathers in grace magnify his holiness. Right? It's a call to magnify the holiness of the blessed person of our God. And that holiness of that being God who we worship should arouse our souls to worship, right? That divine attribute that most depicts his innermost character, that shows his separateness, that shows his uniqueness. As his grace and his kindness towards us in salvation causes us to praise him and to praise him first in our hearts. Verse 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. So again, David is encouraging himself to rise up, uh, to praise the Lord, to remember, to stop, take time to reflect on God and his goodness, God and his holiness, God, his character, God and the salvation that he has brought to us. And in the New Testament, John reminds that, uh, that truth uh, also, right? That, that God is looking for true worshipers. God is seeking true worshipers, those who worship him in spirit and in truth, right? That's heart worship. The bubbling over, the overflowing of a heart filled with gratitude that reflects the person of God. And again, it's not half-hearted, it's not ill-conceived, it's not unintelligent praise. It's an encouragement to stir up our hearts, to bless the holy name of God, and then to not forget any of his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that was in me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. None of God's divine blessings uh, should be ever forgotten. We should remember all of them. None of his divine dealings with us. They're all beneficial. They're all subjects of praise. Uh, they're all, all, all subjects of praise with everything or all that is within us. So we should not, cannot forget the great things that he's done for us. I mean, just stop and think on a practical level how different our life would be if we actually were obedient to the command to not forget any of his benefits. Right? If we actually did not 
if we actually were obedient in this one area, if we forget none of his benefits, if we were moment by moment blessing the Lord with all that is within me, how much different would our lives be on a practical level? Because if we were obedient to that one command, then we'd have no time for bitterness. If we were obedient to that one command, we'd have no time for complaining. If we were obedient for that, to that command, we'd have no time to be discouraged because our life would be nothing but constant, continual praise and worship of our God. If we remembered, if we forget none of his benefits. Now, forgetting is fleshly. Forgetting is sinful. To forget is to leave or to neglect priceless treasures of God's grace and kindness to us through Christ. Because we choose not to remember, we choose to forget his benefits. Right? When we choose not to remember, we choose to forget his benefits. One of the things we did this uh, um, Thanksgiving uh, time with our kids home, which I'm very grateful for uh, my, my wife's encouragement to do this, is we took uh, we just made a little uh, tree. One of the gals wrote, uh, did a little uh, uh, picture of a tree, just the stalk and the branches. And then we took little leaves, um, um, you know, fake leaves, artificial leaves, but we just went around the table and said, tell us something that you remember about God's goodness and how you're thankful for that. And we tried to do it. We weren't perfect, but we tried to do it every um, meal that we had together. And as we did that, we told the story, which is what we're remembering God for, and we wrote it on the thing and stuck it up on the wall. And before you know it, the tree started filling out, right? And it was just a great encouragement to just slow down a little bit and to remember Right? It's hard to be thankful if we don't slow down and remember. And we live in a culture that does everything except slow down, right? All of the time-saving devices we have do nothing except suck up all of our time and cause us to have no time for anything, right? We choose not to remember, therefore we choose to forget his benefits. Now, it's interesting, and you're familiar with this, because I think part of the genesis of that little thing that we did at the house was because the women are going through the Old Testament. They're going through the book at one time in Deuteronomy. And God warned the nation of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy not to forget. Deuteronomy 8 and 11, Beware lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes with which I am commanding you today. Lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water, out, or brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you, to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and my strength and my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which with he swore to your fathers in this day. And it shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify you uh, against you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations the Lord makes to perish before you, you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Uh, Again, I made reference to this morning, the fact that culturally we're in a whole lot of problems, right? We're in a whole lot of trouble. And part of that is because we as a nation have chosen not to remember God, right? 
We've kicked God out of everything. Now that's the nation, that's the unbelieving world, but we as God's people, uh, again, as light and darkness, we need to remember. We need to always remember. Forget none of his benefits. Right? For when your heart becomes proud, you forget the Lord your God. Again, if we just spent all of our time contemplating the Lord and remembering the Lord, the fact that he saved us with such a great salvation, if we just filled our minds uh, with the catalog of God's blessings and benefits to us, just think what a difference that would make for us on a personal, individual level in our lives, how that would change not perhaps our circumstances, but most certainly our countenance, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that change our countenance? Again, just think how your life would be full of joy always. And how that life of joy, your life of joy, would be an encouragement and joy to the hearts of those around you. If we but never forgot his benefits. Forget none of his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits. And then he starts to name them, at least in part, in in verse 3. Verse 3 says, who pardons all your iniquities or who forgives all your sins, it says in the NIV. It really is a stunning statement because the word all is there. He forgives all your sins. Because again, forgiveness is the fountain of, uh, fe- uh, 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 is the foundation of fellowship, right? Who pardons all your iniquities, it really is a call to repentance. Because the gospel promises that repentance and confession of sin brings cleansing and relationship. Verse First uh, uh, um, John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? So God should be praised because he forgives us. He forgives all of our sin. Sin, which is that ether- eternal life-threatening disease that uh, threatens to uh, spread to our entire soul. It's by God's grace that he heals that deep plague of sin within us. Uh, God, through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 43, verse 25 says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. For my own sake, I will remember, I will not remember your sins. So this is the work of God. Right? So the first, the first gift that should make us heartfelt worshipers of God in, uh, uh, always is salvation, the pardon of sin. Uh, again, as forgiveness is the first step of our spiritual experience, pardon that grants past, present, and future a cancellation of all of our sins. Sins of commission, sins of omission, uh, things that we should have uh, done, things that we should have not should not have done. Forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities. Then he says, who heals all your diseases. Which obviously begs the question, does that mean that like the health and prosperity uh, gospelers of our day, they proclaim that all of your physical diseases and ailments are taken away? Is there a promise of of uh, physical restoration here, right? Well, the the companion statement in, in the verse really kind of gives the answer. So whatever the answer is to that uh, question, all your diseases has to uh, mean exactly uh, what that companion, that parallel statement goes uh, that, that goes with this uh, text says. It says, "Who heals all your diseases?" And then the parallel statement, "Who pardons all your iniquities?" So what he's talking about in the context is the forgiveness of sin. He's not talking about physical disease. He's not talking about physical healnesses and those things being healed. He's talking at the core issue about having our sin taken care of. Because it's our, our sin that brings corruption to our nature. It's sin that brings sickness to the soul. It's sin that brings us physical death. 
The Lord heals all your diseases. The Lord has cured your sickness. And he's done that by the way of forgiveness of sin. And so again, he's not talking about physical illness in the context. He's talking about spiritual disease, the diseases of the soul, and the forgiveness of sin. And only through forgiveness of sin can you be healed. Now over in Isaiah chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but God, don't, do not have to turn there, but over in uh, Isaiah 1, God through the prophet kind of gives that same picture of this physical analogy of Israel and, and her rebellion and her sickness uh, when he uses a physical metaphor. Isaiah 1 and 5, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint <clears throat> from the sole of the foot. Even to the head, there's nothing sound in it, only uh, bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. So he's not talking about physical issues here, as a lot of people mistakenly try to insert there. There will be a day of ultimate physical healing. There will be a day that will happen when we're glorified, when we're taken away and have new bodies and get rid of these bodies that are under recall, as I like to say. Right? Mine is for sure, I'm telling you. man. Part by part, it's all breaking down, right? And so here in the context, however, he's really talking about forgiveness. Spiritual healing It really describes uh, the issue of regeneration. He's talking about regeneration, new birth, making someone who's a man and woman who repents a new creature in Christ. Then he goes on listing the benefits. Verse 4, he says, who redeems or who rescues your life from the pit or your life from destruction. Again, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about the Lord redeeming us from a spiritual death uh, into which we've fallen. And rescuing us from eternal death, which would have been the consequences um, had not the death penalty or the penalty of uh, death for our sin not been removed. And how is that removed? Well, it's removed by our great substitute, right? Our great substitute who delivered us from the penalty of our sin by giving himself for us as a ransom. John eleven twenty five. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me shall live if even if he dies, everyone who believes and lives and believes in me shall never die, right? That's the great substitute of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. Then he says, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who crowns you, <coughs> excuse me, with loving kindness and compassion. Loving kindness is just God's goodness, faithfulness, his committed love, his covenant love. It really is a deep uh, unbroken expression of a determined act of God's will to love us. And God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. God keeps forgiving. God makes a covenant with those who place their faith in him that he'll never break. Uh, the uh, New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase, says he redeems me from death. He crowns me with love and tender mercies. So God has a committed covenantal love with us a compassionate love. He's loved us and he cares for us. And he's done that through his son, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is that God has loved us while we were his enemies, <coughs> while we were yet sinners. Stop and think about the fact that our, our sins should have earned us the uh, horrors of eternal hell. Uh, our, our sins should have caused us to face God's eternal wrath as traitors in rebellion uh, against him. But instead, he loved us. Instead, he redeemed us. Instead, he, he, he restored us. And he crowns us anew with uh, loving kindness and with compassion. Now, that symbol of a crown obviously has to do with royalty. So that symbol of being crowned suggests a royal glory, a royal authority. 
And that's all because of divine love and mercy. Now, you might remember in Ephesians chapter 2, I read it the other night in uh, uh, Thanksgiving Eve, Paul sees believers reigning there with Christ. Ephesians 2 and 5, even when we're dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show his surpassing riches of grace and kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, we read that and sometimes we read over the top of it, top of it just like I read over the top of it. But it is an unbelievably and amazing truth of God's grace. Our sin should have earned for us the horrors of eternal condemnation. We should be facing God's eternal wrath as traitors to him, but instead he chose to love us. He chose to redeem us. He chose to restore us. He crowns us again anew with loving kindness and compassion. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That is unbelievable, amazing grace. Unbelievable truth. Spurgeon says... Shall God crown us, and shall we not crown him? Spurgeon says, Up, up my soul, and cast a crown at his feet, and in lowliest reverence worship him who has so greatly exalted you as to lift you up from the dunghill and set you amongst the princes. That's a tremendous truth. The unbelievable riches of God's grace through Christ that raises us up, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals you, heals all your disease, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, verse 5, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. That, that Verse 5 is a picture of strength. It's, it's a picture of a vigorous life, strong life, a powerful life. God forgiving our sin. God healing our spiritual uh, disease. God redeeming us, rescuing us, crowning our, our lives with a committed love, pouring out compassion and tender mercy upon us. He is the God who satisfies your years with good things. He doesn't just forgive our sin and forget us. He forgives our sin and he continues to pour out upon us his grace upon our lives over and over again, the abundance, who satisfies your years with good things. Right, The abundance of God's blessings just continue to be poured out upon us. So no wonder David stops and and commands his own soul to bless God. So David starts out with this theme of this internal call to worship, to bless the Lord, O my soul, all that was within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. We talk about it often that we need to command ourselves. We need to stop listening to the nonsense that, that we like to listen to from ourselves, and we need to command our souls to obey God, to listen to God, to obey the truth. And we are command our souls to not forget many of the blessings, the benefits of God that are fully satisfying us. Again, that satisfying in our lives, that climax again with the crown of God's loving kindness and God's tender mercy, again, as it says in verse 4. Now, David's speaking to his own heart, but he's not just speaking to his own heart. He's going to expand the circle, if you will. He's going to begin to speak to the hearts of others for what God has done, what God will do. The fact that everything... Uh, comes uh, everything comes uh, from him so here's the external call to praise verse 6 the lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed he made known his ways to moses and his acts to the sons of israel 
The Lord performs righteous deeds. Uh, The New King James says the Lord executes righteousness. So the idea really is the Lord is working out righteousness. He's working righteousness in the earth according to his absolute righteous principles. Now, the salvation promises that he has just been talking about that were originally given to Moses back in the Old Testament, right? First five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, reveal the saving purposes of God to Moses and to the sons of Israel. But God, being just, has to find a way to justify the sinner, right? Because he is the Holy One. As the Holy One, he has to punish sin. He has a desire to be compassionate, but as the Holy One, he has to punish sin. So he has to find a way to provide justice and then also to demonstrate his compassion. Well, how he can do that? How can he do that? How can the holy, righteous God alone do that? And of course, we know that great question is answered in the Old Testament in a number of different places, but most uh, concisely, I guess, it's solved in Isaiah 53. The substitute, the Lamb of God. The only way that God can give us mercy and grace and forgiveness of sin is because he's punished our sins in Christ. Again, the great substitute, the promised redeemer, and God's great redemptive plan, God's eternal plan of redemption, the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Now you see that truth repeated all throughout the uh, Old Testament, but most uh, specifically, I think, probably in Exodus 34. And you're familiar with Exodus 34. It's just a wonderful text. Uh, In in, in the context of that text, Moses is asking to see more of God's glory. Exodus 34, verse 5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low towards the earth in worship. Because worship is the only appropriate response when you're in the presence of God, and worship is the only appropriate response to the compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding loving kindness of God. Verse 9 says, He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. That just simply means that the righteous judge of the universe, the Holy One, whose judgments are always true and always correct, will not always be our enemy, but he has found a way to remove the enmity. And again, the only way to remove the enmity is through the person of Jesus Christ. Through Christ, God will not always be angry with us because of our sin and rebellion against him. But instead, we're going to go from enemies and strangers to beloved children, uh, forgiven sons and daughters. And you just think by way of contrast between God's generosity and God's forgiveness and the heavy-handedness and the wrath of man, because man who has a quarrel likes to always keep his quarrels ongoing. Right? When a man is offended by another man, he likes to nurse those grievances and keep that, uh, that uh, strife going. But God, who has been infinitely wronged by us, God, who's been infinitely wronged by man, tempers his wrath without violating his justice nor his righteousness. And again, he does so through the sacrifice of Christ as the New Testament reveals that reality. You know, if you have some kind of enmity or hostility between you or another brother in Christ, that needs to, uh, that needs to end. Because that's not proper in Christ. Can I get someone to turn that fan off there, please? Thanks.
When God has been so kind to forgive us of our sin, there should never be any ongoing strife between a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. We should always have a great attitude of forgiveness because God has forgiven us so much in Christ. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. I mean, if he didn't have any other reason, that would be reason enough, wouldn't it, to not praise the Lord? Or that would be reason enough to praise the Lord, wouldn't it? He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Tremendous truth. Again, we deserve to suffer. We deserve to be punished. And if God gave us what we deserved, we would all perish eternally in a conscious, everlasting torment in a place called hell. That's what we have earned. That's what we deserve. Uh, to be cast into the furnace of fire in a place where there is, shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But instead of getting what we deserve, because of God's great abounding mercy, he withholds judgment against us, and he doesn't treat us as our sin deserves. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities, but Christ's atonement has come and made a satisfaction towards our sin. Therefore, as believers in Christ, we will never be condemned, right? As believers in Christ, we will never be condemned for our sin because there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I mean, God's mercy is amazing, and God's amazing mercy triumphs. God's amazing mercy triumphs over his wrath. It triumphs over our sin because, again, of the substitute the substitution of Christ, our sins are forgiven, forgotten, just like Paul says, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, Romans 5 and 20. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness, his, uh, his uh, uh, goodness, his steadfast love. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. So now David is talking about the towering greatness, the towering greatness of God's mercy. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. Well, how high is that? Answer, pretty high. Right? Pretty high. You look up into the uh, sky at night, if you're someplace where you can see the stars, you look up into the stars, and you see the most distant star that you can see, and then you have to remind yourself that God's mercy is still higher. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him, the authorized version says. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him, the ESV says. It's an attempt to illustrate the infinite. He's trying to illustrate the infinite. He's trying to illustrate the infinite love of God. The infinite mercy of God, the, the love of God that has no bound, the love of God that has no height, no end to its height. And then David uses a second illustration of the greatness of God's mercy. Verse 12, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us. So again, the question is, how far is that? How far is the east from the west? Well, it's a line going in opposite directions all the way to infinity. Right? Just like east and west are always opposite, always separated so too will we be always separated from our sins because what, of what God has done in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And again, <clears throat> again, look there at verse 12. So far as he has removed. Right? So far has he removed our transgression from us. Again, salvation is always the work of God. It's not the work of man. 
And again, the work of God, ultimately the removal of our transgression and sin, takes place at the cross. And again, the Old Testament, Isaiah the prophet says, Isaiah 53, uh, verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord was uh, pleased uh, to crush him. The Lord has, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, right? It's the substitute, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that gives us this infinite mercy and this infinite love of God the Father. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us, verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Right? The father pities his children, it says in the uh, New King James. The father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Verse 14, for he knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are but dust. But the Lord has a love for us who he should have hated. The Lord has a love for us whom he should have judged, but he has found the substitute, the perfect substitute, to take away our sin. Therefore, he can pardon us, and he can, have, he can as a father, have compassion on us, just like a father has compassion on his children. And then he says again, verse 14, he knows our frame. He knows how we started out because he made us. <clears throat> He's mindful of the fact that we're but dust. And guess what? That's right back where we're going. Right back to dust. He understands our feebleness. He understands our frailties. He understands the weakness of our will. He understands the the strength of our sinful impulses. He understands our, our selfishness. He understands our readiness to disobey. He understands the weakness of our prayer life. He understands the reality that we tend to forget all of his benefits. He knows all of it. Right? Because that which is born of the flesh is of the flesh. One writer says a corrupt nature cannot produce anything but corrupt acts, right? And while we are redeemed in Christ and new creations in Christ, we still struggle with indwelling sin. And that struggle with indwelling sin often causes us the root of sin to forget God and his benefits. He knows all about our weaknesses. Yet just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Verse 15, for as man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. Again, God understands how fragile we are. Men, we come and go. We, we flourish for a season, then we're gone. We're carried away and forgotten. Verse 16, when the wind passes over, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. All right, the wind or a breath of air. I mean, that's how transitory we are. All right, so transitory that the wind, just a breath, sweeps us away and we're gone. I can't remember where I got this, but I thought this is very helpful. It's a great picture. Someone said this. He says, the dust of princes or the dust of a peasant, the dust of men or the dust of a beast, it does not matter. From dust we came and dust we're going to return. Isn't that the reality? Boy, we like to think so much of ourselves. Our rulers like to think very highly of themselves. doesn't matter if you're a prince or a peasant, a man or a beast. We're all dust. And that's exactly where we're going to return, back to the dust from which we came. And the sad reality of life is most people will live their lives on this planet and they will make little to no lasting impact on the world. That's encouraging. But it's reality. Sad but true reality is most of us will live lives that make little to no lasting impact on the world. We will spend all of our life laboring, under the sun, by the sweat of our brow, and when we die, we're going to be gone, and that's it. And as far as the world is concerned, 
It's as if we've never been. When we die, the world's going to go on in its busyness. The sun's going to rise. The sun's going to set. The moon's going to wax and wane. The rivers are going to continue to flow. And things are going to carry on as if we've never been. If we've been blessed in life, we might have a friend or a family member that has loved us and they'll remember us. But then they too will die and will be forgotten in their memories. And they too will suffer the same fate. From dust they came, from dust they're going to return. That's reality. But verse 17 is tremendous hope. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, and those who remember his precepts to do them. But what a contrast, huh? The reality of life is a fallen man in a fallen world. But the loving kindness of God, of the Lord, right? The loving kindness, his steadfast love, his mercy. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Now, this is a tremendous point, so I hope you're really paying attention here because your heart will be encouraged. God has a covenant love that is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. A a righteousness to his children's children. A righteousness that is poured out upon generation after generation on those who fear him, those who keep his commandments, those who obey him, those who remember his precepts to do them. Our God has mercy without end as well as without beginning. And those who love him and those who are loved by him will never have to worry ever about their sins being brought back up because they have been exhausted in the depth, the great depth of God's eternal grace. So what does it mean for God to have everlasting love? And and, and this is really mind-boggling when you stop and think about it. What does it mean for God to have everlasting love? It means this. There never has been a moment in the mind of God that he didn't love us, ever. What does it mean to have everlasting love? It means that there's never been a moment in the mind of God that he didn't love his own. In eternity past, God had a covenant love, right? There was a covenant love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and that covenant love extended towards us who were not yet created. Ephesians 1 and 4, just as he chose us in him before, the foundation of the world, an eternity past, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will. That's the eternal, electing, glorifying love of God. That's the love that God has placed on his own long before we came into existence. That electing, glorifying Love that God has for his own has been there as long as he has been. And how long has he been? He's been there forever, right? Eternally. I mean, that's an encouraging truth. That no matter what we've done, no matter how great our sin has been, there has never been any time, not one moment, not one millisecond, that God hasn't loved us eternally. We who fear him. We who have been called by his grace into his family. There has never been a moment, not even a millisecond, that God hasn't desired to pour out his compassion and grace upon us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Isn't that great? 
I mean, so the question is, do you fear him? Do you love this God? For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. As for a man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, he flourishes. So when the wind is passed over, it is no more. Plagues acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. Verse 18, to those who keep his covenant, to those who remember his precepts to do them. When we think of our frailty and his eternality, I mean, it is wonderful to think of his mercy towards us that links human frailty with divine, eternal righteousness. So again, from eternity, God has made us in-time objects of his mercy, in-time objects of his love. He chose us to be partakers of his great grace. Spurgeon says this, the doctrine of eternal election is the most delightful to those who have light to see it and love wherewithin to accept it. It is the theme of our deepest thought and highest joy. Isn't that true? Boy, the doctrine of election is not some kind of doctrine to be feared, run away from, scorned, as a lot of people think. It is a delight to know those who can see and understand uh, and understand something of the eternal love of God that he's loved us with in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This God who never changes. This God who is always the same yesterday, today, and forever. This God will always have mercy without end without beginning upon us whom he has loved, those who have been called according to his purpose, those who fear him, and those who keep his covenant. Right? The Godward side, the manward side, those who keep his covenant remember his precepts to do them. Because again, in the divine mind of God, how this works out, he has it all perfectly down. We see the eternal electing love of God, but in time we're called to obey God. That's why Jesus Christ says in Matthew six forty six, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's why the writer of the Hebrews says, Hebrews 5 and 9, he became, speaking of Christ, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Right? If there's no obedience in your life, there's no right to call God your Father. Uh, There's no uh, reason to expect to receive his blessings. But there is all the reason to expect his blessings by the eternal, amazing grace of God who has loved us eternally, saved us by his grace, and now manifests that uh, salvation and our obedience as a response back to the Lord. So again, it's a cause enough for us all to, with everything within us, just to bless the Lord, right? To bless his holy name, to praise him continually, to worship him, to adore him, because he's eternally, everlastingly loved us. I mean, it's a staggering truth. It's really difficult to get our minds around. I understand that. It's really difficult to even properly describe it. We can see the evidence of indwelling sin when we easily forget this kind of staggering love. We can see the evidence of indwelling sin uh, not with the things we're fighting in our flesh, but with this mindset that we're always complaining, always disgruntled versus always praising and worshiping our God and our Christ for the salvation that they brought for us because of their love and kindness. So you have the internal call to praise, you have the external call, and now you have the universal call, verse 19. Verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. So the Lord has a fixed, immovable throne. We've talked about that. It's established. It's settled. Uh, God in heaven whom we serve, who is our Father, is boundless in power and strength. And his kingdom rules over all. It rules over everything. He reigns universally. He always has. He always will. The world may be in chaos. The world may be in anarchy. But he brings order out of confusion. 
and no one can stand against him. No one can thwart his plan, his purposes. Therefore, the call is for everyone to worship him, because all are going to bow their knee before him. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 2, Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those all who take refuge in him. The authorized version says in chapter uh, Psalm 2, verse 12, it says, Kiss the Son. Right? Do homage to the Son or kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Because every knee is going to bow before him. Every knee is going to bow before him. And it's only those who put their trust in him that are going to be blessed. All others are going to be crushed. So the sovereign king overall must be worshipped. Christ must be worshipped because he he reigns out uh, with uh, a universal sovereignty. And so that call to worship God, to worship Christ, reigns, uh, rings out universally. Verse 20. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Verse 21. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, who serve him doing his will. So the question is, what does the word host mean there in verse 21? Sometimes the word host is rendered the armies of heaven. Sometimes it's a reference to heavenly angels who fight for the righteousness of the Lord. But since back in verse 20, he's already spoken to angels directly. Some commentators suggest he's going beyond personal beings here to literally call and command the entire created universe, even the inanimate elements, to praise God. And you see that kind of... uh, Phraseology, host with this tie to the everything in the created universe to worship God. You see that a couple times in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4 is one. Speaking of the sun, moon, and the stars. Deuteronomy 4.19. Beware lest you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and moon and stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole earth. You see the same thing in Psalm 148. Psalm 148, verse 2 says, Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, here it is, all his hosts. Praise him, sun, moon, and praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest in heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. He has established them for from uh, established them forever and ever, and he has made a decree which will not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, the sea monsters, all the deeps, fire and hail and snow and clouds and stormy winds, fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees, and all cedars, beasts, and all cattle, creeping things, and all winged fowl, kings of the earth, and all peoples, princes, and all judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, and old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven, and he has lifted up a horn for his people. Praise for all his godly ones, even for the sons of Israel, a people near him. Praise the Lord. So again, all of creation is called to bow the knee, and all of creation is called to praise the Lord of glory. Verse 22 says, Bless the Lord, all you his works of his. All you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Because again, the Lord is always worthy of worship. So again, David is commanding his heart, calling upon his own heart to praise the Lord for, for his many blessings. And he calls on other people to do likewise. God is displaying to us his eternal love, his mercy. We deserve rejection, but we get acceptance. We deserve wrath, but we get mercy. We deserve hell, but we get heaven. 
We deserve Satan, but we get Jesus. Because God's mercy is over everything. Over all of us. Therefore, God is worthy to be praised. So what do you do when you find yourself having difficulty praising God? What do you do when you don't, quote-unquote, feel like it? What do you do when you get discouraged, when you lose your joy? What do you do when you feel like not coming to gather together with the saints on the Lord's Day and come to the fellowship? What do you do when you don't feel like singing hymns of praise? Well, David says, look, the key to consistency, the key to devotion to God is to grow in your knowledge of God, to increase your love for him. And that happens as you study the word more and more. And then when you understand who he is, who we are, who he is, and what he has done for us through Christ, that should encourage your heart to worship him. But again, when you don't feel like it, we don't want to, the command of the scripture is to command your own soul. Right? To summon your soul to praise, to worship God anyway. Like David commanded his soul, bless the Lord, O my soul. Right? And it's a note to do it with everything he has with the entirety of his being. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. From the innermost being of our hearts, praise should come. And like David, we should begin by stirring the innermost self to magnify the Lord always. And then call on others around us to join in to that worship because God is worthy of worship. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for this wonderful psalm. So thankful for all the wonderful truths that are found in this psalm that help us to praise you in every aspect of our life, in every moment of our life, every situation of our life, to fix our attention upon you, to increase our heart's love for you, to deepen that love for you, so that the praising of you will arise from the depth of our being. Forgive us for what is often shallow or dry worship. Help us to be overflowing with a gratitude towards you for your many mercies, because you've had great pity upon us. You've been compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness to us. And may we, in response... Praise you, the King of heaven. To your feet our tribute bring. Ransom healed, restored, forgiven, evermore. Your praises sing. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.